Hello and welcome to the Complexity Premium Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yingye Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital and Smarter Money Investments. And Yingye is joined by Christopher Joy. I'm also a Portfolio Manager at Coolabar Capital and Smarter Money Investments. So Chris, we actually have quite a lot to discuss in this episode of the podcast, but we'll briefly cover off on financial markets, give you guys a bit of an update here. We'll discuss the consequences of the Australian election for investors, whether or not the Australian housing market is turning, whether there are actual opportunities in RMBS, why Scott Morrison won, and whether the budget is the key to his success, and whether ScoMo actually has an agenda. So Chris, what's actually happening in markets? Yeah, well, Ying, as they say, uh, sell in May and stay away, and May has certainly thus far proven to be chock-a-block full of interesting events. Uh, We've obviously had the election, unsurprising to us, but definitely a huge surprise for financial markets, and that's absolutely been reflected in the price action we've seen. We've also had a a resurgence in trade frictions, which is uh, a key focus of ours right now. But generally in, I guess, cash credit and fixed income, which are the two asset classes we focus on, returns this month have been solid and also I think quite interesting across the different sectors. So the bank bill index, which is a cash proxy to the 23rd of May, um, was up 11 basis points. That's pretty normal. The Osborne FRN index, the floating rate note index, which basically tracks a portfolio of Aussie dollar investment grade uh, floating rate bonds, was up a bit more in the month to date, up 14 basis points. Uh, One standout has of course been the ASX hybrid market. In the month or two before the election, we moved about $100 million of extra hybrids into our portfolios in anticipation of Scott Morrison prevailing and or Labor winning and the independents in the Senate having the balance of power and blocking Labor's franking proposal, which we thought was basically dead as a doorknob as of circa a few months ago when the Senate preferences became much clearer. We have as a consequence seen the hybrid market significantly outperform. I think on the Monday following the election, the market was up. 40 to 50 basis points in price terms. The biggest day we had seen, and we'll talk about this later, Ying, is since the ALP announced their uh, franking proposal on the 14th of March last year. Uh, Month to date, we have the ASX hybrid market up 77 basis points, just again compared to uh, investment grade floating rate bonds, which were up 14 basis points. The real uh, outperformer, however, in the month has been duration, as RBA rate cuts have started to be priced in more aggressively, uh, and the trade war dramas have bounced back we've seen the Osborne Composite Bond Index, which is a portfolio of fixed rate as opposed as opposed to floating rate bonds, jump. Uh, and it's up 1.43% or 143 basis points in the month to date. Extremely strong returns. In our active composite bond strategy, we are ahead of the index month to date. You know, over the last 12 months, uh, that strategy in the year to April returned 10.24% compared to the composite bond index's 7.9%. That's pre-fees. And that, uh, again, is an institutional product. It's not available to retail investors in any way shape or form so interesting and i think certainly as we head into june it'll be fascinating to see what if anything uh, trump and g are able to resolve at the g20 summit and that will definitely be the subject of a detailed podcast shortly so turning to the consequences of the australian election for investors 
As very active capital structure investors, we at Coolabar Capital are constantly engaged in repricing the absolute and relative valuation levels spanning preferred equity, subordinated or otherwise known as tier two debt, non-preferred senior or tier three instruments, senior unsecured bonds, cash deposits, super senior covered bonds, and off-balance sheet asset-backed securities, otherwise known as ABS and RMBS. It sounds complex, and it is. Our assessment has been that a coalition victory at the federal election, which our portfolio positioning anticipated, has important consequences for bank capital structures in particular. This was a view that was firmly validated by the price action on Monday following the Australian election, with major bank hybrids jumping more than 0.46% in price terms, while the required credit risk premium on five-year major bank hybrid securities compressed from 3.56% above the quarterly bank bill swap rate, otherwise known as BBSW to 3.37% above BBSW or, you know, 19 basis points of spread contraction in just one session. So indeed, the jump in hybrid valuations on Monday was almost the exact opposite of the losses incurred on the 14th of March last year in 2018, when Labor first announced its disastrous franking policy. The reaction in major bank hybrids was echoed in the junior ranking ordinary shares, which leaped 6 to 9% on the day, with the normal beta or correlation between the two asset classes. Chris, what are your more specific thoughts on what the coalition victory means right across bank capital structures that most investors are exposed to? Yeah, Yingers, let me talk about the um, implications for uh, Aussie credit more broadly. First, unsurprisingly, the sleepy hollow that is the major banks over-the-counter cash bonds, known as credit, hardly reacted to the coalition victory, notwithstanding the stunning equity and hybrids price action that we saw on the Monday following that you mentioned. It is, um, though, very normal to see a lead lag relationship between listed equity and OTC credit, uh, which is much more inefficient than listed equity and this appears to be uh, once again in play. As we've argued for some time now, RBA rate cuts do remain our base case and we would expect a very strong pass-through from the banks as funding costs have shrunk sharply. I'm thinking here 40 to 50 basis points of any 50 basis points of cuts. One rider is APRA's very important announcement last week that it's going to remove the minimum 7% serviceability interest rate banks are required to apply uh, when they lend to borrowers. Now, I think most listeners would know that we uh, predicted this would happen actually way back on the 29th of April in a piece I wrote in the AFR. Uh, and APRA has actually gone even further than we expected. They've removed the 7% uh, minimum rate altogether and instead of dropping it by 50 basis points, which was our central case. They've now got no minimum interest rate uh, and they've just got a minimum 2.5% buffer that the bank has to use above the actual lending rate when testing a borrower's capacity to pay and therefore determining um, ultimately the overall borrowing capacity. This is much more positive for the housing market than a pure 50 basis point uh, rate reduction from the RBA, that is two standard 25 basis point cuts, which must now be um, the most likely contingency that we face. In April, we, I guess, controversially forecast that the housing correction was over uh, if the RBA cut rates, I think, were the first in the market to do that. And we project now that APRA's um, very large rate cut, which uh, we'll probably talk about later, uh, expands on our analysis, the uh, typical discounted borrowers borrowing capacity by up to 20% or more. We think that cut combined with the market expectation of two RBA rate cuts will lift 
Aussie house prices by five to ten percent in the 12 months after they are implemented. As we've previously discussed, we think the RBA is at the margin comfortable with the idea of cutting the cash rate to one percent, knowing it can ramp up Aussie quantitative easing or QE by buying government bonds, senior bank bonds, uh, and ABS and RMBS if it needs to. Indeed, one significant insight that we've not discussed on the podcast before is that Aussie QE should, given the unique variable rate as opposed to fixed rate bias in our financial system, rationally involve the RBA buying bank senior bonds first and then on a secondary basis, ABS and RMBS. The transmission mechanism for the RBA from bank senior bonds is going to be much more powerful than the conduit offered by ABS and RMBS, given the latter are only a tiny share of the big banks' funding sources. I'd also note here that um, senior bank bonds and AAA rated uh, ABS and RMBS are all already repurchase eligible with the RBA. So the RBA is de facto buying those assets as collateral and then lending against them through its uh, repurchase arrangement. So Aussie QE is only a small step beyond that. We think any future RBA rate cuts will be a game changer for everything in years. Uh, they should be very positive for lower risk assets paying attractive spreads above the cash rate. Um, you know, Examples of that uh, that we focus on in our portfolios are things like senior bank bonds, subordinated bonds, and hybrid bank credit. And of course, combined with APRA's um, massive cut, they'll be very positive uh, for the housing market. We wouldn't be surprised to see uh, S&P's analyst, uh, Shao Jane, consider an upgrade to Australia's economic risk score in the same way they preemptively downgraded it before the housing correction in 2017. And this would be an extension of, I guess, their overall directional trend, given they recently, in 2018, upgraded the sovereign uh, AAA rating to stable. Combined with the additional circa uh, 15 billion New Zealand dollars of extra common equity capital um, that the RBNZ is going to require the four major banks to hold, this would have the consequence of lifting the major banks' standard and pause risk-adjusted capital ratios to above, we believe, the crucial 10% threshold, which would then in turn increase the major banks' Uh, standalone credit profiles, which are currently A minus to A. So a major bank senior bond is ranked double A minus, but that's lifted from A minus through uh, government support assumptions. It wouldn't affect the senior bond ratings, but it would boost the ratings. This uh, change of um, any hypothetical tier three uh, bond, which would move from triple B plus today to A minus. Tier two bonds would be upgraded from triple B to triple B plus. And perhaps most significantly, um, additional tier one capital hybrids issued by the four majors would be upgraded from double B plus to triple B minus. Um, that latter move is very significant in because it pushes hybrids back into the all important investment grade band where you'll see much more insto buying. I also note that the coalition's tax cuts are estimated by CBA Economics to be worth another one to two RBA rate cuts, rate cuts, which combined with the current federal budget surplus, which uh, should be building very, very nicely given iron ore is over US $90 a tonne and is certainly in surplus on all three measures in the 12 months to March, means that I'm pretty sanguine on the domestic uh, economic outlook. But Chris, can you be a bit more specific about what the election means for assets across bank capital structures? Clearly not good enough for you, Yingers. Okay, let's move from the general to the specific. Um, I guess first, major bank senior bonds. I think the election's credit positive because stronger economic growth and the housing recovery will power bank credit growth, while RBA rate cuts will reduce bank arrears and losses, improving profitability and ameliorating 
housing tail risks. I think in addition to that, the current big bank tax on the major banks' wholesale debts is not likely to be changed under the coalition, which introduced it, whereas this was a definite risk under Labor. Indeed, it's possible the coalition could eventually consider removing the levy, and especially in a second SCOMO term, if the budget is seriously strong. Uh, it was introduced as a quote-unquote budget repair measure. Uh, I think more generally, there'll be less populist bank regulation that had been threatened by Labor with both ASIC and APRA less likely to engage in gratuitously punitive actions to uh, sate their uh, otherwise insatiable Labor political masters had that turn of events come to pass. I think the Commonwealth Treasury is likely at the margin to be even more rational and I must say it's been doing a fantastic job since its real uh, intrusion into financial services reform via the financial system inquiry uh, in 2014. And I think all of this is happening whilst APRA is continuing to force the big banks to hit their unquestionably strong 10.5% CT1 ratios. And the RBNZ is pushing them to an, an even higher target, 14.5% um, CT1 ratio, which are really credit positive for bondholders. And then finally, I guess, Major Bank Senior debt would be a key QE target if the RBA ever uh, undertakes it. And I think now Bill Evans at Westpac, of course, predicting we're going to get three cuts, not two cuts, um, which be, brings us, I think, even more closer to the uh, QE uh, possibility. The major banks tier three bonds, to be clear, these don't exist. Um, these would sit between senior debt and subordinated debt, but they could exist if APRA adopts a, a tier three bond solution for its so-called TLAC or total loss absorbing capacity policy. Um, so I think as the populist bank bashing pressure dissipates, the probability of APRA implementing a rational TLAC policy surely improves. Our current expectation is that we'll get a contractual tier three solution with some statutory hooks, um, and that's demonstrably the simplest for APRA to implement in liquidity cost capacity and regulatory change terms. Uh, a far less rational, but more costly and less liquid tier two solution should at the margin become less likely. On that note, um, for tier two, well, I guess insofar as APRA has less pressure to um, you know, meet or bow down to populist political pressures or demands, I should say. I think I think as tier three becomes more probable, the risk of an irrational tier three supply shock clearly fades, which is positive for tier two sector that was blown up when the original draft TLAC paper was released in November, November 2018 by APRA. Um, certainly, I think we can say that market pricing absolutely currently expects APRA to embrace global best practice via some sort of Australian Tier 3 product. And then finally, uh, for the major banks, uh, Tier 1 hybrids, as we've discussed above, immensely positive as evidence on the price action on day one, given cash refunds on franking credits uh, are no longer at risk of being removed. Coming into the federal election, five-year major bank hybrid spreads were sitting at about 3.56% above of the bank bill swap rate, known as BBSW. In January 2018, prior to a surge in new issuance and the ALP's announcement of the proposed franking changes, um, hybrid spreads in this sector were sitting about 3% above BBSW. And then, uh, of course, back in mid-2014, they were trading at just 2.4% above BBSW, or more than 100 basis points lower than where they were sitting pre-election. So while the major banks have been boosting their equity substantially, um, you know, for example, you know, CBA CT1 ratio in 2013 was 8 0.2%, whereas nowadays it's meant to be heading towards 105 to 11%. And that's very positive for hybrids um, because that equity buffer um, directly reduces the risk of uh, hybrids being converted to equity when the CET1 ratio hits 5.125%. 
Despite all of this, the credit spreads on these securities have actually drifted wider, um, not tighter in recent years. I actually have a chart of hybrid spreads on a Livewire post that I put up recently. So if you go to Livewire and their website, you can see that. So this may explain why institutional investors, I think, have been increasingly gravitating to the sector. We saw the $60 billion uni super pump $300 million into the latest NAB hybrid and about a billion into major bank hybrids in 2016. And I think as their, the bank's business models continue to de-risk, particularly through selling non-core operations and focusing on their core savings and loan activities, I don't see any reason why major bank hybrid spreads should not compress back to the level levels observed in 2014 eventually and earlier, um, which implies uh, credit spread levels are below 3% above BBSW, particularly if they get that upgrade from uh, S&P into the investment grade band. I think what the Coalition Victory assures is that no political party is ever likely to mess with franking credits again, and this means retirees should be able to retirees should be able to comfortably claim their cash refunds on franking credits in perpetuity. And I think over time, this will see advisors and brokers who are encouraged who were encouraged to sell their hybrids over the last uh, 14 months re-embrace the sector yingers. Thanks for elaborating on that in detail. So I want to move on to the housing market and whether, you know, the housing market is turning in Australia. And in April, we forecast that the housing correction was likely about to end. And it looks like there are now tentative signs that house prices are indeed starting to turn. The Hedonic CoreLogic Index, which revalues a portfolio of circa 10 million properties each day, indicates that price falls have significantly decelerated or stopped altogether in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane in May. In fact, there was a massive jump in Sydney auction clearance rates on the weekend. About 70% of 505 CoreLogic auctions compared to 56% this time last year. The final clearance rate should land in the 65% range, plus or minus a few percentage points, which would be the best result in a year. So if the Reserve Bank of Australia cuts its cash rate twice, with the first likely to come at its June meeting next Tuesday. You have now written that you expect national house prices will climb at least 5-10% to 10% over the 12 months following the final move. So we understand that the RBA has been privately telling bankers that they should pass through 100% of its June cut, and potentially more, given the sharp compression in funding costs. Uh, the latter have alleviated partly as a function of the RBA helping to push down previously elevated short-term secured, um, otherwise known as repurchase uh, rates, and indirectly unsecured bank borrowing rates. So our takeaway from the RBA's latest board minutes was that the decision to pause in May was purely about avoiding politicizing the central bank by influencing a federal election. The so-called jobs test that Governor Phil Lowe established following the May meeting, where the jobless rate had to drop materially to save off a future cut, was not remotely satisfied by the latest data. The modest increase in the unemployment rate from a revised 5.1% to 5.2% was statistically insignificant and driven by a bump in folks looking for work. So Chris, you had advocated exercising the option to wait in May on pragmatic grounds, which, you know, I would agree with. So kudos to Lowe for delivering. Let there be no doubt, however, that the RBA remains an inflation targeter, although there must be questions over what the right target is. The potency of the RBA's June cut will be materially amplified by both SPOMO's economic agenda and APRA's decision on Tuesday, well, last week, to slash the minimum interest rate banks use when assessing how much they can lend, which, Chris, you had predicted on April 29th, to be precise. Since December 2014, 
APRA has required banks to assume an extremely conservative minimum 7% home loan rate when assessing serviceability, and almost all lenders add 0.25% to this benchmark. So whereas you might pay 3.5% annually, the bank pretended you had to service debt at 7.25%. What APRA is doing now is that it's, well, proposing to, is that it plans to replace this fixed benchmark with a minimum 2.5% buffer above the actual lending rate. And this has profound consequences for borrowing capacity. So for a borrower paying 3.5%, the bank now only has to assume that they are servicing at 6%. Our analysis indicates that APRA's change will enhance this person's borrowing capacity by 14%, with the impact growing as home loan rates fall. If the RBA cuts twice and the cheapest home loan rates fall from, say, you know, 3.5% to 3%, our analysis suggests that borrowing capacity will lift by 20%. Chris, any further thoughts on this? Yes, I do, Yingers. Um, so I guess, while I don't think the RBA needs to cut, and I personally prefer that the housing market fully clears. The fact is Sydney home values have dropped in as more than 15% from their mid-2017 peak. Melbourne prices are off over 11% and the five capital city core logic index uh, has corrected uh, 11%. The reality is not many countries have pulled off such a large unwinding of house prices while maintaining positive growth and a very low jobless rate. So hats off to APRA for precipitating this much needed adjustment uh, with its many different constraints on credit creation um, introduced between 2014 and 2017. Listeners will know that in April 2017, after calling the boom uh, between 2012 and 2017, uh, we forecast a 10% drop in national house prices, uh, which is basically exactly what we've got. In May 18, we revised that to a 10 to 15% decline, depending on whether Labor was elected. Um, we were of the view that if SCOMO prevailed, the downturn would be at the lower end of this range, uh, eliminating the threats of a 50% increase in CGT and the removal of negative gearing, a huge positives for housing. And combined with um, SCOMO's unexpected first-time buyer's boost, we definitely didn't predict that. I think he will be able to claim some credit for the ensuing recovery that we anticipate will come to pass. Uh, Since late 2018, we've also argued that the banks would start relaxing their lending standards following the Royal Commission's report. And this uh, additional tailwind is certainly beginning to materialise. We never bought into the UBS John Mott view of the world that there'd be this catastrophic housing credit crunch. On ScoMo's unsurprising victory, spare a thought for the many Aussies, the amazing Aussies, um, who have committed their uh, lives to public service and unfortunately lost their jobs and or had their dreams dashed by Labor's demise. I don't consider myself politically partisan, notwithstanding that I have been backing ScoMo um, to deliver the goods since 2017. The fact is some of the best Australians I know are involved in the labour and trade union movements, and I've worked closely with both in the past. Uh, This includes extraordinary human beings with incredible passion and altruistic intent. I stood shoulder to shoulder with these folks when we battled the Liberal Party's insidious plans to destroy the essential future of financial advice or FOFA laws, um, the importance of which was a central finding of the recent Royal Commission. And it is in truth, I think, easier to find folks who are engaged in politics for the right reasons in the Labor movement. Malcolm Turnbull, for example, would probably probably have been better off uh, with them. So Yingers, what's next? 
So turning to RMBS, Chris, I want to discuss the opportunities there. And, you know, there's this silly view that you're a huge RMBS hater, um, even though you did help convince the government to invest $15 billion into RMBS during the financial crisis and convince ScoMo to invest $2 billion into SME, ABS, or asset-backed securities prior to the latest election. So the fact of the matter is, and to clarify, that we at Coolabar were a large buyer of RMBS between 2012 and 2016. And that's when house prices in Australia were booming at double-digit rates. Mortgage arrears were falling, borrowers were paying loans faster than normal, um, the new issuance or supply of RMBS was quite weak, and most importantly, credit spreads offered on these securities were historically high. Now, when every single one of those variables changed for the worst in 2017 and 2018, we exited the sector. House prices started falling, uh, registering their largest declines ever, destroying the value of the collateral protecting RMBS. Mortgage default rates rose to the same levels experienced during the crisis and may now be higher. Home loan prepayment rates dropped like a stone, blowing out the expected life of these bonds. New RMBS supply soared to the largest levels since 2007, and the credit spreads offered on the bonds tied to the skinniest margins in over a decade. I just want you to discuss where your head is now at on RMBS. I definitely share your sentiments, Ingers. Um, for the last year and a half, we've felt like a lonely voice highlighting RMBS risks, and of course, we've published a lot of novel research to verify them. For example, we developed the world's first hedonic or compositionally adjusted index of RMBS arrears or default rates that showed Aussie RMBS arrears were rising in contrast to S&P's index that implied they were moving sideways. Um, the S&P index was being artificially suppressed by the surge in new RMBS issues um, that come to market default free. Indeed, since almost every bank in Australia is loaded up to the gills with RMBS that they buy for their um, uh, liquidity books and most fund managers have large allocations often to the riskiest tranches with the highest yields there has been an enormous amount of quote-unquote book talking uh, to defend these positions while we tried to get short the sector or profit from price falls and we were definitely shadow short relative to peers we were not able to do so uh, for a bunch of complex reasons that frankly would ruffle far too many feathers were we to reveal them I think we have therefore been one of the few unconflicted participants when it comes to objectively evaluating the pros and cons of RMBS vis-a-vis other alternatives. <clears throat> Pretty much everyone else either issues it, buys it, rates it, and or clips the ticket advising on it. In 2019, RMBS has been the worst performing sector in Aussie fixed income, with primary or new issue credit spreads moving consistently wider since mid-2018. In the last week alone, uh, we've seen uh, an extraordinary, actually, frankly, the last few weeks, we've seen an extraordinary number of new deals come to market. We've seen seven deals at one point simultaneously in the market, and this supply pipeline is definitely unlikely to abate which means spreads are likely to push wider still, um, particularly if we get a recovery in housing credit growth that will need to be funded with more RMBS issuance. But you know, assuming the RBA cuts, uh, the housing market turns as we project, and crucially that Westpac prevails in its responsible lending case against ASIC in the federal court, uh, we're definitely gonna consider uh, re-entering the sector um, we would probably prefer new pools that don't have some of the legacy problems of existing pools. 
<clears throat> and I think there'll be good entry points over the next one to two years uh, if the bonds are priced correctly, which is obviously not guaranteed. I definitely uh, personally like the secured, i.e. asset-backed and self-amortizing, uh, that is where principal is constantly repaid, uh, nature of RMBS and other asset-backed products. Uh, and the exposure you typically get, typically get to thousands of nationally diversified loans. But there are complex assets to understand and price, and um, the huge quote-unquote long-only acts in the market means most commentary that you see about RMBS and research tends to be immensely biased and seriously uh, understates the risks. Uh, one example of this, of this is that we have regularly mark-to-market RMBS deals priced since 2017 with incredibly low level, levels of loan seasoning, um, that is very low weighted average loan lives, using CoreLogic's uh, hedonic house price indices. And this analysis reveals a striking increase in the risk in many RMBS portfolios as a function of falling house prices and rising arrears. We can find deals where the share of loans with less than 10% equity protecting them appears to have leapt from below uh, 5%, 5% of the deal to over 20% of the entire uh, bond. Indeed, um, you know, we found one 2018 transaction, that is RMBS bond, where it looks like 12% of all of its assets are underwater or in negative equity. Uh, this unambiguously, and let's make this clear, this unambiguously increases the probability of rating downgrades and should it the very least demand greater compensation in the form of superior spreads. I think our research also triggered the RBA's own attempts to market to market the sector in the latest financial stability review. They basically did what we did uh, and found that I think about well a few percentage points of all uh, RMBS loans were underwater. It also I think triggered at least one of the major banks to mark to market uh, their loan books, which they always do in calculating dynamic LVRs. But for the first time ever, ANZ disclosed a share of its home loans on its balance sheet that had LVRs over 100%, which was pretty amazing, at 3% of all loans. Um, and that actually excluded uh, impaired loans. So the total number is likely to be greater if you included impaired, impaired loans. Um, does that answer your question, Yings? Thank you, and yes, it does. So I want to cover off on why ScoMo won. So, Chris, prior to the election, you advised your investors, well, our investors, media colleagues and friends that it would not be surprising if Scott Morrison won the election comfortably. And for months, you did argue that the betting markets and political pundits were wrong in assuming ScoMo had no chance. Indeed, you posited that he possessed impressive prime ministerial material in May 2018 and warned in January that Labor risked a John Hewson redux. What was the basis for this contrarian view? Yeah, happy to address that issue, Yingers. And let me just say again that I don't consider myself to be particularly politically partisan. Yes, again, I have backed ScoMo since 2017, but in the past, uh, I've worked quite closely with the ACTU um, on different campaigns. I've worked with Labor on its policy to invest 15 billion into the RMBS sector during the GFC. So I'm interested in solutions. Um, and I think ScoMo um, is a solution at the present time. So my insights, and you, you made the point that I had um, told our investors that I wouldn't be surprised if ScoMo won the election comfortably, uh, and that was not predicated on any political inside information. The belief ScoMo could win was premised on pure first principles logic. Uh, in fact, he actually felt like an intuitively good trade, a massively mispriced asset. Um, I, th I think I, a few weeks before the election in an AFI column, I wrote, 
that I thought the election would be an intelligence test for the community, or more precisely, a test of whether rational self-interest would prevail. The bottom line is that I think May Labor made a catastrophic error betting so boldly against self-interest. You know, on the one hand, you had a party that was proposing to actively take away wealth from vast swathes of middle Australia through Labor's tax everything that moves platform and redistribute it subjectively uh, to those that Labor judged were more deserving. Embedded within this bargain was the ask that the community should trust Labor to spend the money they raise from all of its new taxes wisely. So setting aside Labor's very bad luck in presiding over the 91 recession and the GFC, um, you know, the reality is, the empirical fact is that they have had a long history of running up large deficits. And I think it was asinine to consider or to assume the community would buy the argument that Bill Shorten um, was going to manage their money better than they could. On the other hand, you had Scott Morrison. Um, who you know I have described as that rare politician who relentlessly underpromises and overdelivers. He did stop the boats. He did save Australia's AAA credit rating. <coughs> he spared borrowers' interest rate hikes. Had we lost that rating, um, he has put the budget back into surplus after the biggest run of mainly labour deficits in history. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know it's currently in surplus on a on a 12-month rolling basis. The thing about Scomo is he's been serially underestimated all of his political life by colleagues and media experts. I've explained to my AFR readers that in my first-hand dealings with Scomo, dating back to his days as Shadow Housing Minister, to his time as Treasurer, uh, and over the last year helping him develop his globally unique policy to reduce small business borrowing costs by co-investing $2 billion alongside the private sector in asset-backed bonds full of SME, SME loans. During this experience, a few things have become clear. Uh, the first is that Scomo is incredibly hardworking, and I think he's an authentic grinder. There aren't any fancy frills. He just focuses on the best possible solution. And he, I think, does genuinely care about getting correct outcomes in service of his community. I remember a random phone call a year ago from Scomo, and he said, mate, I've just met a small business lender, and the interest rates seem shockingly high. How can we get them down? He then went to work with us developing a complex policy that had never been tried anywhere else in the world before. Secondly, I'd say that ScoMo is seriously smart and he's consistently underestimated in that regard. Uh, and even more importantly, I think he has excellent judgment. Uh, and I think that derives from his initial instinct to always hone in on the right answers as opposed to the politically correct ones. I've never seen a treasurer more furiously committed to protecting Australia's AAA rating. When every single analyst and investor globally thought our AAA rating was a goner, um, save of course um, ourselves here at Cooler by Capital, we forecast it would be saved and not downgraded in April 2017. Uh, ScoMo worked tirelessly uh, trying to convince SMP that he could steer the budget back to balance uh, and then into surplus. Now, while this was not a big vote winner, he impl implicitly understood the dire knock-on consequences for borrowers' interest rates if Australia was downgraded. The choice he came to the election with was brilliant in its elegant simplicity. In contrast to Labor, he was not going to take our wealth away on the basis he could spend it better than we can. On the contrary, he would reduce our taxes and leave us with more money. He just wanted to empower us to be the best versions of ourselves. I describe this year as a battle between Labor's desire to regress winners to the mean and socially engineer equality of outcomes by punishing the hardest workers in the community and ScoMo's vision of cultivating aspiration and equality of opportunity. I think John Howard on election night nailed it when he said Labor's class war rhetoric um, tried to pit Australians against Australians where 
whereas SCOMO sought to foster incl- inclusion and collective success through individual exertion. So why did the polls get it so wrong? Um, my hypothesis is that in this digitized world, punters are much more sensitive to intrusions into their private domain. Privacy has become a defining issue of our age. People are therefore far less comfortable imparting personal opinions to random strangers, which is, I think, why the experts misjudged Brexit, Trump and ScoMo. Spare a thought, though, for the um, droves of mums and dads who are advised to sell their franked equities and hybrids on the flawed assertion that their franking credits would be lost. We were a lonely voice arguing this was a bad idea, and we've definitely seen billions of dollars of these assets dumped at the worst possible time on erroneous assumptions. Retail investors have suffered losses as a result in direct and in opportunity cost terms. To make matters worse, they have been encouraged to sell franked assets to buy the tsunami of high yield debt LICs and LITs sold to them by individuals being paid enormous conflicted sales commissions of 2 to 3% of the money they raise. These payments are expressly banned under the future of financial advice laws that were introduced in 2012 to stop fund managers raising cash from mums and dads to prevent the mis-selling crisis that have repeatedly arisen in uh, these cases where you have conflicted remuneration. Uh, LICs and LITs somehow secured a carve-out from the FIFA laws in 2014. It's not well understood, I don't think, that these LITs often invest in assets with inferior or no credit ratings to retirees' hybrids, and these assets are also often issued by smaller companies with uh, inherently high default risks. They can also have poor underlying liquidity, which can be a problem if investors want to exit the LIC or LIT and have to do so at an enormous discount to its net tangible assets or NTA. And there are LICs and LITs in the market right now trading at circa 25% discounts to uh, their NTA. So once again, unfortunately, I think the financial services industry has failed Main Street. Let's move on to the federal budget and whether, you know, that was the key to ScoMo's success. And since 2017, you have argued that ScoMo's budgets would surprise with their strength and lay the foundations for electoral success. Yet the same media that generally lambasted the last three budgets are now following the election result, claiming that the budget could have been key. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, this is an interesting point, Ying is, because I remember in May 2018... Um, and I'll read you a couple of quotes from a column I wrote following uh, ScoMo's budget, which I think uh, you know, some leading media participants kind of laughed at the time. And I wrote then that ScoMo delivered a brilliant, quote-unquote, election-winning budget that could be a game-changer by tapping into deep community discontent with political weasel words that for a decade have over-promised and under-delivered, eroding our trust uh, in our leaders. Morrison was the first to successfully stop the boats as immigration minister, and he is now on the cusp of securing the first surplus since the GFC. These accomplishments and rising public faith in his ability to deliver on promises in an understated way um, create the foundations for the treasurer to one day argue that he was uh, or is prime ministerial material. This, of course, is before or was before Turnbull was rolled as PM and uh, Scummer ultimately scaled those heights. Um, but I think that did uh, prove prescient. And a year later, in March this year, uh, I wrote the same thing, um, quote, in what could be an electoral game changer, the government's budget has remarkably moved into a full surplus on several key measures, 12 months ahead of the government's forecast, as this column predicted it would do. 
So I think with the benefit of Harry Hindsight, there are lots of experts now who apparently understand that the budget was crucial to SCOMO prevailing in the polls. Um, but as we've already discussed on the podcast, I think it was a uh, multifaceted victory and there were many underlying uh, thematics that came into play. So while we're on the topic of Australian politics still, Chris, you wrote in the AFR that the widespread media consensus that PM Scott Morrison has no agenda is crap. You argued that most critics do not see the agenda because they are projecting their own political prejudices. Reading the piece, your position was that ScoMo's agenda is about empowering individual exertion, aspiration and productivity through lower taxes, smaller government, balanced budgets and investments in infrastructure, education, health and national security that create equality of opportunity while fostering individual and collective success. Any more ambitious reforms beyond this require substantial political currency that ScoMo has yet to accumulate, and they will have to be developed and sold in subsequent terms. Can you expand on this for our listeners? Sure. Uh, In spirit, ScoMo's agenda is, I think, one of the first truly libertarian programs that we have seen in a long time globally, where he's been able to cut taxes, enable aspiration, and crucially balance his own books by running budget surpluses. Um, noting the budget, as we've discussed already, is currently in surplus. Uh, Many conservatives around the world promise lower taxes, smaller government and fiscal responsibility, but I think they really struggle with the latter. Like his Republican predecessors, President Trump is exhibit A in this respect, uh, bequeathing huge budget deficits. I think the media's inability to grasp this belies that they are, as you mentioned, um, often projecting their own uh, political biases. They want huge public agendas, quote unquote, because they often desire labor style interventionist narratives. It does uh, obviously make a lot more to write about if you've got a lot more policy intervention. Uh, yet every time Labor raises taxes on hardworking Australians and unilaterally burns through that ca- cra- cash, uh, it is dulling individual aspiration and productivity and pretending that Labor knows how to redistribute that money better than the community knows how to spend it. Um, and I think where Labor rejects the wisdom of crowds, Scummo embraces it. Um, and make no mistake, this is a fundamental ideological conflict. Whereas for decades, the Australian Labor and Liberal programs were hard to distinguish, ScoMo has created a clear choice between the parties um, by returning the Liberals to their libertarian roots. Um, And now I realise he's not a pure libertarian, so some might think that's a stretch, but uh, the program is certainly heading in that direction. And for all the talk of productivity, quote-unquote, it is, I believe, a deeply misunderstood word. What productivity really means is people working hard and investing as much creative energy as they can in developing successful businesses on the increasingly interconnected global stage. The single most powerful way to encourage productivity is by improving the financial incentives for people to work as hard as they can to fulfill their potential. And the answer to that is mitigating the heavy weight of of government taxes on innovation and ingenuity. Uh, ScoMo's initial agenda, I believe, will be developing and implementing his mandate to reinforce aspirational incentives throughout the economy. So that's going to mean more tax cuts for individuals and businesses, fairer tax incentives, that is less regressive regimes, by which I mean uh, ScoMo embraces rather than rejects flatter tax rates, uh, further strengthening the government's finances through paying down debt and additional investments in infrastructure, health, education and national security to ensure the government provides the public goods uh, people need to succeed. 
Scummo's vision is grounded in an essential humility that resonates with his down-to-earth character. You know, the son of a policeman who grinds away, day in, day out, consistently under-promising and over-delivering. This means humbly accepting that governments really do a better job of innovating and producing goods and services than their people. Nor are they more efficient or fair allocators of scarce resources than freely functioning markets. I believe that Scummo's vision does present a bit of an existential challenge to Labor's business model, um, which can often be predicated on the belief, and I think we saw this during Bill Shorten's campaign, that the state knows better than its people. Where Scummo arguably departs from extreme libertarians is that he pragmatically recognises recognises that markets occasionally do fail, and that there can therefore be a role for government to kickstart activity. That's exemplified in his efforts to nurture innovation through, for example, the um, $2 billion co-investment with the private sector in SME-backed ABS that we've talked about already during the show, that is securitized SME loans, which is designed to attract international capital to compete with the incumbent banking oligopoly. Now, of course, the blueprint for this was the program that I pitched to Labor in 2008, and that they eventually acted on that is the $15 billion investment into the ailing securitized home loan market during the crisis. That market, importantly, has since flourished, and in the last two years alone has attracted more than $100 billion of private capital. So I do think that every time uh, ScoMo under promises and over delivers, he builds more credibility and trust with the community, which could, with a little little bit of luck for ScoMo and focus and discipline, um, potentially establish the foundations for Australia's next great political legacy. I do believe he's um, quite Howard-esque in that regard. That legacy will, however, require deeper reforms in future terms, but only once ScoMo uh, revitalizes the Liberal, Liberal Party's political compact with the community. That is one back voters' faith in governments to make intelligent reform decisions on their behalf that truly maximize national prosperity. Okay, thanks, um, folks, for listening to this episode of the podcast. Uh, we will close it out there. Just a huge expression of our gratitude. I think we ranked number three on the Australian investment podcasts um, in the charitable rankings. Uh, we've been blown away by uh, the sheer volume of listeners, which has far exceeded our original expectations. Please note this is only for wholesale investors, uh, and please listen to Ying Yi's very eloquent disclaimer. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.